Okay, Jesse, last week was a classic lying spouse with a pretty unorthodox murder. What's the story this time around? A once devoted mother and wife descends into desperation and drug addiction after facing several hardships in life. Sunday school teacher Velma Barfield leads a deadly double life and hides her cold-blooded secrets until her fiancé suffers an agonizing and poison-filled death. Soon the authorities discover that this isn't Velma's first murder rodeo. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about bad wives, double lives, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on TikTok and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and by searching Love Murder Podcast on Facebook. If you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod, where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. And speaking of Patreon, we are thrilled, as always, this week to welcome and shout out a new set of absolutely incredible patrons. Welcome to Olivia B. and Tanya B. Thomas H. and Heather E. Anastasia N. And Rhiannon G. And Ashley G. and Casey J. Welcome, everyone, and also thank you for joining us on our happy hour. Some of you guys did, and it was so much fun. It was like, you know, this is coming out on Wednesday, but it's Friday when we're recording it, and we did it last night, and it was a hoot. It was a great time. It was so fun to see everyone. I know. I talk too much, though, when we do these things. (laughs) I get so excited. (laughs) I mean, I was a little occupied with my child. Yes. Andy's uh, child care fell through, so we had a guest star last night. She was a very good girl. Yes. Well, I would love to keep chatting with you about all of our wonderful listeners and all of our incredible patrons. But today we have a real humdinger of an episode with lots to talk about and lots of people involved. So I think we should jump right into it. Let's do it. It was a later in life love affair between opposites. 56-year-old farmer Stuart Taylor was a tall, well-built man with a big personality and a raucous wit. Well, his fiancée, Velma Barfield, was 46 years old, on the shorter side, bosomy, soft-spoken, and a very devout Christian. Stuart had never been much of a regular churchgoer, but he began to attend, well, religiously, for lack of a better word, when he hitched up with Velma. Together, he and his Christian gal, as he called her, would attend special evangelist meetings, choir concerts, and he'd stick around while Velma taught Sunday school. Soon after dating, a ring appeared, and to Velma's family shock, the couple moved in together while they planned the wedding, living in sin for such a woman as Velma Varfield. (sighs) But it's the late 1970s, not the 1870s, for goodness sake, and the lovers were hardly virginal. Both had grown children and small grandchildren. Despite outward differences, Velma and Stuart had similar hard scrabble pasts. 
They had been brought up in poverty. They both had teenage marriages. They lost their first spouses. And Stuart even had a couple of divorces under his belt by that point as well. Wait, wait. He lost a spouse and divorced a couple of spouses? Yes, this is his fourth marriage. Wow. Yes, he's going on number four at 56. Okay. Yeah, we'll get into it later. To very quickly wrap it up, it was one of those situations where he lost the long-term love of his life, mother of his children, and almost didn't know how to be alone. And so he ended up in a kind of two rebound marriages. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So clearly, it had not been an easy road to love. But both Velma and Stuart hoped that this would be their final marriage. This is the lasting love that would take them softly into their sunset years, the real happily ever after, finally. Unfortunately, that was not meant to be. In late January of 1978, Stuart began to get violently ill. Oh, no. Vomiting, diarrhea. He had involuntary thrashing of his arms and legs. What? Yes. And he was a pretty hardy guy who, you know how farmers are, up at dawn, working all day. It's the type of like work muscles that come from working the land. And he was having a hard time getting out of bed. He said to another farmer who helped take care of his pigs that he felt like he was on fire from the inside. Well, there's only one explanation for this. Yeah. Satan. (laughs) That's not where I thought you were going with that one. But yeah, no, it was not Satan in this case. It was somebody a little closer to home. Stuart was rushed to the hospital where the doctors believed he had an acute case of gastritis. And they did the best they could to make him comfortable and try to treat him. But nothing that they did seemed to help Stuart even a little bit. He screamed in pain until the painkillers helped dull the horrible agony he was in. His cries became muffled and intermittent, and then he was silent. Stuart Taylor died only about an hour after being checked into the hospital. Whoa. Stewart's gathered loved ones and the doctors were equally stymied at what had brought down the seemingly healthy 56-year-old man so fatally and so fast. The doctors suggested an autopsy. In their grief, Stewart's children turned to Velma. She was equally distraught. Her fiancé had just been ripped away from her so violently. But she encouraged them to have the doctors perform the autopsy. She said, if you don't do it, you'll always wonder. Many people would later wonder exactly what Velma was thinking when she suggested that autopsy, because the doctors would find the thing that had killed Stuart, and that thing was arsenic. All of a sudden, the authorities realized that sweet, devout little Velma had had an awful run of luck. Seemed like people around her just made a habit of dying. A shocking confession and a couple of exhumations later, and the state of North Carolina was looking at a grandmotherly serial killer and a death penalty case. Velma Barfield would attempt to atone for her sins and become the face of the anti-death penalty movement. This is an episode about despair, drug addiction, retribution, serial poisonings, and maybe redemption. Andy looks skeptical. Skeptical about the last one. Yes, and we'll talk about what redemption means in cases like these. I guess it means something different to everyone. 
It does. It does. And, and I think we should talk about that within uh, the world of the justice system, especially the United States justice system. And we'll talk about that later. A uh, big thank you to Nancy T, which is our longtime listener, Nancy, who has recommended quite a few cases at this point. In a lot of the most interesting and compelling cases, like she recommended uh, Joyce. Remember the manacled Mormon? Yes. That was another Nancy recommendation. So Nancy coming in with the deep cuts. She really is. And I know that I talked to somebody else, I think on social media about this case, and they sent me the book that we use today. So if that was you and I somehow lost you on our Google spreadsheet for recommendations, just send me a, a DM and I'll send you a magnet or something to make up for the lack of shout out. Sorry, guys, as we get a little bit bigger, I'm getting even less organized, unbelievably. But the book I used for my primary source today is Death Sentence by Jerry Bledsoe. And I also watched a episode of a show called World's Most Evil Killers. It was on YouTube. I think it's like a Sky TV production because it's British. And it was season six, episode 18. And I got some also key details from a crime library article by Denise No. So I was wondering, Andy, if you had ever heard about Velma Barfield before. I think I'd remember a name like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's not a whole lot of whodunit mystery in this one. We kind of know who the killer is right off the bat. But there are a lot of questions about additional potential victims if some of Velma's circumstances hadn't been so hard and difficult. Would these murders have happened at all? And like we talked about earlier, what does redemption mean and to who is it deserved? So there's a lot going on this week. So we're going to start right out by talking about our wee baby future murderess, Margie Velma Ballard, as she was born. Wow. Yeah. So her first given name was Margie, but she went by Velma. And she was born on October 29th, 1932, the second of nine children and the first girl born to parents Murph and Lily in rural North Carolina. And Velma grew up quite literally dirt poor. There was a dirt floor, no electricity, no heat, no hot water. The Ballards did not even have an outhouse in Velma's early years. You would have to go out into the woods to do your business or do it in a piece of crockery at night, Jerry Bledsoe wrote. Velma's dad, Murphy, seemed pretty overburdened financially. He had nine kids, but he was also taking care of his elderly parents. And it seemed like there was a lot of pressure on him, which he took out very poorly. He had a lot of rage and frustration. And he was said to be extremely physically abusive, especially with his children and his pets. So any sort of stepping out of line, any act that he found to be insubordination or misbehaving, people and pets, unfortunately, would get beat bloody black and blue for stepping a toe out of line. And so when they went to church or when they were out in public, everyone's like, wow, Murph's kids are so well behaved. But the secret sauce was abuse. It was that they were terrified of him. So it was a hard way to grow up. And Lily Velma's mother was very submissive to Murph. And she never raised her voice. She never raised a hand to protect her children. She would just basically pretend it wasn't happening or look passively by between that and the fact that as one of the eldest kids, Velma was expected 
to do quite a bit around the house as well as help raise her younger siblings, she became very resentful. She was very resentful that her mother did nothing to protect her. She would later say that she kind of was under the impression, based on where she grew up in the Times, that all dads were kind of jerks and they all disciplined their children in a similar fashion. But she thought mothers were supposed to step in and protect their children. So it was almost like her anger at being abused was displaced a little bit. Although I understand, I mean, it's everyone's working together in this, though I'm sure Lily was terrified of Murph as well. But she was more angry at her mom almost. And she was very frustrated with both of them because she was a child who never got to be a child because she was always taking care of her seven younger siblings. Much later, it was also alleged that Murphy may have also been sexually abusive towards Velma, but that was never verified. There was a lot of back and forth between the other siblings all said that it hadn't happened, but obviously none of them were Velma, so they can't say whether it happened to Velma or not. Suffice to say that her home life was terrible, and unfortunately her school life was not a lot better. Though Velma was bright and she did like her teachers and she liked the attention she got from her teachers because clearly she was only getting negative attention at home, she was bullied by her peers about her poverty and her appearance. There was just a lot of bullshit about what she was wearing and for some reason what she brought to lunch. I guess like this was an era where sliced bread was becoming a thing and it looks like you could afford to go to the store and buy certain things and have a certain type of stylish sandwich, which I didn't even know was a thing. But apparently in this era in the 40s, it was. And she would bring some leftover whatever from the night before and some cornbread. And I guess she was bullied for what she brought to lunch. Crazy. Yeah. I mean, if it resembles some sort of like status class situation. Mm-hmm. So Velma very desperately wanted attention. She wanted to be admired. So she started stealing, stealing what she could from her father and then apparently also from one of her elderly neighbors. When Murph found out about this, you can imagine what he did. He beat her with a belt until she was black and blue. After that, Velma put petty larceny behind her for at least a little while. How long? We'll see when we get into her adult era, when the larceny began again. A bright spot did occur in Velma's life when she was 15 years old, and she developed a mutual crush on a 16-year-old boy named Thomas Burke. Thomas was tall and gawky. They said he had jug ears, but he seemed very sweet. He was easygoing. He was kind. He made Velma feel beautiful and wanted and worthy and that she was special too, things that she had never really felt in her life. His family was great. He wasn't from a family of drinkers. She was very against drinking because a lot of their father's abuse stemmed from his alcohol use. So she was very attracted to this seemingly kind young guy. And the only problem was that Murph absolutely would not let her date. So originally he said, well, you can date when you're 16, but 16 came and went and he still wasn't allowing her to date Thomas, even though he was a nice kid. So eventually when Velma turned 17, Thomas said, we're never going to get permission. He's never going to let you date me. Let's just go and elope and get married. And then he can't do anything about it because we're already married. Yep. 
And that's what they did on December 1st, 1949. She was 17 and he was 18. And she actually went home and didn't even tell her parents for a couple nights because she was so scared of telling her dad. Is it legal when she's 17? Apparently in 1949 it was. It didn't matter. Okay. Yeah. This was a legal marriage, yes. Eventually she did break the news to her parents and I guess all hell broke loose. He was really angry. He didn't beat her or anything, but he would like took out some anger on his oldest son saying like his oldest son should have prevented it from happening because he was the oldest one and older than Velma. And it just there was chaos. And it got to the point where he was trying to tell Velma that she had to annul the marriage. And she said no. So they ended up moving in with Thomas's parents and the Bullards would eventually reconcile with Velma. Like all's well that ends well at the end of the day. But again, this was another case of what Velma perceived as her mother not stepping up to defend her, to help her. It should have been her mom helping her manage the situation and being her confidant and helping her blossom into womanhood. And she didn't feel like she had that support. Yeah, and not excusable, but I'd imagine that she's a little overwhelmed, the mom with nine kids and an alcoholic abusive husband. I feel like Lily's voice really does get lost in this because it feels like she has figured out that she can't win. That if she tries to champion her children, her husband will be abusive towards her. Even though the kids said that they never saw it, that doesn't mean that it hadn't already happened or it wasn't a veiled threat. And I think that she then could not win with her kids who felt like she wasn't doing enough to protect them. It was just a no-win situation for her. So Velma and Thomas dropped out of school to go to work and they started a family. The couple welcomed son Ronnie in 1951 and daughter Kim in 1953. Velma was by all accounts a very good mother during her children's early life. The family went to church every week. They said that she kept a very tidy home. The kids were loved and nurtured. Both children recalled that Velma was an incredible mother. Apparently, for several years, she was the class parent for both of them. Wow. Yeah. So she was super PTA mom. Velma did not drink. She did not approve of Thomas drinking either. I think later in life, he might have a drink here or there, which she was not a fan of. So for their family, it was really just church, family time, clean living for the first 13 years of Velma and Thomas's marriage. Wow. But like these stories often do, that all changed in 1963. When Velma was 30 years old, she had the onset of a medical condition that required her to have a hysterectomy. So she had some very bad uterine fibroids that were causing hemorrhages. On the family planning side, this was just fine with Velma and Thomas. They had both had very large families and saw how difficult it was for children when there wasn't enough resources to go around. So two kids was way enough for the two of them. And that was all they only planned to have. But by this point, also, Kim and Ronnie were, they were preteens, I think. So this was not a thing that they were worried about But it seems like Velma was not properly counseled or maybe they didn't know what the side effects of a hysterectomy at 30 years old would be. I highly doubt at this point 
there was any sort of hormone replacement therapy or anything that would ease the transition. And as a result, everyone said that Velma was never the same after this hysterectomy. Really? Yeah, they said she developed severe mood swings. She became depressed for the first time in her life. She started becoming fixated on her weight, which I guess was harder to lose after the surgery. I would imagine has something to do with our hormones as our bodies change and we aid. And that was an artificial circumstance due to the removal of her uterus, obviously. So she just was not doing well. And she, for some reason, thought that if she gained any weight and she wasn't a she wasn't a big lady at all, like she was still like a very small woman. She thought that if she gained weight, Thomas wouldn't be as attracted to her. So she started taking all these diet drugs, which back in the 60s were basically just like amphetamines with like a dropping of cocaine or something. That's going to give you more mood swings. Exactly. That's not going to like bring the vibe down. That's just going to ratchet it right up. So she was already insecure. Now she's completely on edge. She developed a shopping addiction that she had never had. She started buying all the stuff that they probably didn't need and was more than the family could afford. Soon she was bouncing checks, which went against her moral code. But these side effects aren't even what put her on a path of death and destruction. It was the fact that something apparently had gone wrong with this surgery as well, because afterwards she was experiencing debilitating back pain. Oh, no. Yeah. So Velma went to two doctors and they basically said, you're going to have to live with this, but we're going to give you some painkillers to manage the issue. Oh, great. So now she's taking diet pills and painkillers. Yep. And Velma developed an all-consuming addiction to the prescription drugs. And this would cause her demise as well as the demise of seven other individuals. Meanwhile, things weren't going so great for Thomas either. I mean, you can imagine that his wife is going through all this, obviously. He's got two preteen kids who he's trying to manage how they're doing with this whole situation. He got into a car accident and suffered a bad concussion. And Velma suspected that maybe he had been drinking and that caused the car accident. He denied it. But there was a lot of fighting going on. Mm, I mean, you should never drink and drive. But I think he could have one drink if she's like. Yes. And that was the thing. She was crazy about like not even one drink. That's not fair. Yeah. So she was on him about that. And then his beloved father died and he had a very good relationship with his father. So Thomas was a mess after this. And that is when he actually did begin to drink, which I'm sure he was stressed already. And she's on him all the time. So he's like, fine, if I'm going to like get in trouble for it, I'm just going to start drinking. I'm going to do it. It almost be better if you didn't make a deal out of it. And it was just like something that you enjoyed on a Friday night without being scolded. Yeah. And then when you're driven into like hiding behaviors. Yeah, exactly. So she said that even drinking one single drink was inviting the devil into his body. I told you. Satan has a place in the story after all. But the thing was, is that she's a hypocrite. Babes, you're doing speed and opioids. 
Yes. She just did not feel like she was doing anything wrong. And this is the case of a lot of people, I think even today, but especially in the 60s and 70s, that people felt like if the drug is prescribed by a doctor, I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm just taking medicine. But is a diet pill prescribed? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Doctors would hand out diet pills for anything. I mean, you could still, to this day, be a totally normal weight and walk into a weight loss clinic and get fentermine. I don't know if that's great. No, no, of course it's not. But the diet industry is a big, big industry. It makes a lot of money. And I'm not sure entirely when doctors started getting kickbacks for prescribing certain medications, but that happens as well. So in any case, she's on the painkillers are the bigger problem and Valium, which was a huge drug of choice for her. But she doesn't think she's doing anything wrong. But if Thomas drinks, he's doing something wrong. So their son, Ronnie, said that by their 15th wedding anniversary, they were just constantly fighting. He said that Velma would not let anything go and she would start screaming at Thomas the moment he walked in the door after work. So in response, Thomas said, screw it. I'm, I'm done trying. I'm not going to go to church with you, which was a big deal to Velma. And I'm going to drink as much as I want. So suck it, basically. So Velma's increasingly spaced out on drugs. And now Thomas is getting wasted. The kids do not even recognize their parents. These are the parents that they've had who until like 13 years into their marriage and the kids were like, I think at that time, like 11 and 10, had been perfect, loving, caring, sober, nurturing parents. And now their household is a mess. Their parents are fighting. They're both using something to get by. And things just went from bad to worse. In 1967, Thomas was charged with drunk driving and he lost his job at the Pepsi Cola plant. Well, it's good no one got hurt. Yeah, no one got hurt. It was just like himself kind of, but it was not a a lasting injury. But he didn't have a car at that point. That was the family's whole car that he wrecked. He had no way to get to work and he was out of work for months while Velma was getting rides to go to doctor's offices and pharmacies for her medicine. But she was essentially doctor shopping at this point. So she's going to a number of doctors to get her medicine. And Good Samaritans, her church friends, would take her because she's going to the doctor. She's going to the pharmacy. That's not like she's asking for a ride to go to the bar. Or like getting drugs off the street. Exactly. Well, Thomas finally got a new job, but it was the late, late shift. It was midnight to 8 a.m. And he started a pretty not great tradition of working that midnight to 8 a.m. shift. And then he would get off and he would drink from 8 in the morning until the early afternoon. And then he'd pass out until it was time to get up in the dark and go back to work. Not good. Yeah, Velma was furious. And now she has reason to be. I mean, it's like she started getting upset about like one sip of beer. And now here we are. And everything that she said has come true. But I don't think she saw her part in the whole equation. Definitely not. Definitely not. So she would take Kim, the youngest, the daughter, for a little while and go away and stay with her parents for a couple days and come back. But she kept coming back. 
And it seemed to Ronnie, who's the oldest, that the family was fractured, but not beyond repair. There was still hope, he thought, for mending what was going on in his own family. Until one day in 1969, when the Burke family suffered a truly shocking loss. While Velma was out of the house and the kids who were at this point 17 and 16 years old were at school, it appeared that Thomas had fallen asleep in bed with a lit cigarette, which caused their home to go up in flames, killing Thomas and the family's two pets, a dog and a cat. Oh, yeah. Thomas hadn't had much in the way of life insurance. His policy just about covered his funeral expenses and debts that the family had incurred while he was out of work. Velma was able to collect Social Security benefits for her kids, but this was no great windfall for the family. This wasn't like they got a big payday when he passed away. It was a loss of income for sure. Both Velma and Kim got jobs working at Belk's department store to make ends meet while Ronnie worked odd jobs and studied. Ronnie was really smart, despite the loss of his father and, of course, his mother's continual descent into drug addiction. Ronnie graduated second in his class, and he apparently only missed being valedictorian by a sliver of a point. Wow. Yeah. But at that time, I guess... For Ronnie, too, I don't know what this era was like in this, you know, 1969, 1970. He wasn't eligible for any scholarships or they weren't offered to him and they had no money for college. So Ronnie had the dream of going to school, but he ended up instead working at the Pepsi Cola plant where his father had once worked. Meanwhile, Velma had started to date again. About five months after Thomas died, she connected with a widower named Jennings Barfield, which might sound familiar to you guys. Well, Velma had worked with the first Mrs. Barfield at Belk's, and apparently this was like an older lady. Jennings and his first wife were older. I think that they were 16 years older than Velma. And she had gotten along with his wife, but then shockingly... His wife had passed away very quickly of a cerebral hemorrhage. Oh, my gosh. Just out of the blue. And this was very difficult on Jennings because he was not in the greatest shape. In fact, his wife had always been worried about him and taking care of him and and extending his life. So this was a huge, shocking turnaround for that couple and their family because Jennings had emphysema. He had noted heart problems and he had diabetes. Okay. So I think that we kind of touched upon this with a different fiance of Velma's very early on when you asked about Stuart being married multiple times after losing his spouse. And it definitely seemed like this was a similar situation with Jennings. He needed a woman to take care of him. He met Velma at the funeral. And then within a few months, he started visiting her at Belk's, which I'm sure reminded him of his late wife. And the next thing you know, I guess love blossoms between these two sparks were flying (laughs) sparks were flying at Belk's but I guess Velma was attracted to the fact that she knew how devoted he had been to his wife and that he seemed like a good guy and she was okay with having to be a caretaker to him as long as he treated her well and didn't drink and did not drink and she I think she also needed money at this point to be honest because 
she was on a lot of drugs. According to Death Sentence, Jerry Bledsoe's book, she was seeing more than two dozen doctors and was getting prescribed a large variety of barbiturates, narcotics, sleeping pills, stimulants, antidepressants, and her favorite drug, Valium. How is that not extremely dangerous? I can't even imagine. I mean, I get nervous when I take Benadryl and Advil. I know you do. I know you do. I'm more of the person that's like, oh, my head really hurts. I'll pop six Advil into my mouth (laughs) at the same time. I mean, I'll do that when I have cramps, but like that's the only time when I'm like keeled over. But I just, I don't, I don't understand how she's like functioning. I don't, but I do know that you build up a tolerance. Your body does incredible things to try to overcome being that out of it and intoxicated. So both families were pretty surprised when Velma and Jennings got married on August 23rd, 1970. And this was just a little bit shocking because Thomas had been dead for less than a year. And I think her name was Pauline, Jennings' first wife, had only been dead for about six months. Yeah, it's a little fast. It's a little fast. Daughter Kim had actually gently tried to dissuade Jennings from marrying Velma. And that was because both kids were pretty aware of the fact that their mother was deep into a drug addiction. Like they just said, mom, we think you took too much medicine today. Mom, are you taking the right amount of medicine? I don't know if they even called it a drug addiction, but they knew something wasn't right. I doubt it was a drug addiction if all the moms were doing it. Yeah. But when Kim tried to gently say to Jennings, like maybe her mother wasn't in a good place to get married at that point, he definitely misinterpreted as a teenager's concern about her father being replaced, about not wanting a new stepfather and being like, I'm not going to step on your father's toes. He'll always be your father. We just, we're in love and we want to be together. And, And my daughter has similar feelings because I think that they had like four or five kids, Jennings and his previous wife, and his youngest daughter was still in high school. So she was still living in the home. So he's like, yeah, my daughter feels the same way. I totally understand where you're coming from. And she's like, eh, not really. Not really. When I say my mom's not ready, that's a euphemism. She is not in a good place. So after the wedding, Velma moved in with Jennings and his youngest daughter. And the couple soon realized that it had not been a good idea. They had definitely rushed into this marriage. Let's just say that expectations were not being met. So Velma had told... Her son, Ronnie, apply to college because my new husband, Jennings, is going to take care of it for you. He said he's going to pay your tuition. So he was really excited and he supported the marriage and apparently he got accepted into college and Velma and Jennings went to drop him off on his first day and they were like, okay, well, you're going to be in this dorm, but you can't move in until you pay your tuition bill. And he was like, oh, okay, I thought you guys handled that. And Velma just said nothing. And then they went to the registrar and Jennings didn't offer any money. Ronnie just was like, oh, I guess there was some misunderstanding. Can I talk to you about it tomorrow? And they were like, sure. And his mom and Jennings left. And then the next day, he was so embarrassed about it. He thought maybe he misunderstood. He didn't want to get his mom in trouble with her new husband in case she was making it up. So he had to withdraw from school. (sighs) Apparently, she got the idea that he was going to be more generous 
with her family and her children than he actually was. And maybe he wasn't able to. He had many grown children of his own that he was maybe likely helping to support. And due to his health problems, he was on a pension. He had retired a little early due to his health problems. So he's on a fixed income. So I think that she was pretty pissed about that. And then, of course, on his side, he's finding out that this woman who came across as like a very clean cut Christian woman is actually deep in the throes of a very bad drug addiction. Full on pill popper. Yes, to the point where his daughter and himself at two different times found her near death of an overdose and had to rush her to the hospital, which, of course, is not an environment you want your child in. Your teenage kid? Yeah. So he knew pretty much right away that this was not going to work out and that they had misled one another in some capacity. On Friday, March 19th, 1971, less than seven months after his wedding to Velma, Jennings drove to his son's house and told her that he was getting a divorce and he needed help finding a divorce attorney. His son arranged for him to have a meeting with an attorney that following Monday. So it's Friday. He's got the meeting with the divorce attorney on Monday. But Jennings Barfield never kept that appointment because by Monday, March 22nd, Jennings Barfield was dead. Oh my God, savage. According to the doctors, Jennings had died of his pre-existing heart condition. Velma was devastated and everyone said that she was pretty much blacked out on pills at the funeral. She and Kim moved back into the family's old house. Now, this was the house she had lived with Thomas in that had at one point burnt down and then it was repaired and then it burned down again maybe for some insurance money this is a saga guys i was like i can't even fit in three arsons that's how long and crazy the story is because i don't even have time to tell you about all the arsons arson and larson arson and larceny yes arsonry and larcenry <laughs> then whether it was because she was doing it for insurance money or she was just spaced out on drugs man she Burned down the house for the third time. And this time, I mean, third time's the charm. There was no going back. They could not repair this house any longer. So Kim graduated and she was able to move out. And Velma had no home. Her kids were grown and they were starting their own lives. She had lost her job at Belk's due to her drug issues because she was spaced out at work or not coming in. So she had nothing going on for her and no one to take care of her at this point. So she begrudgingly moved back in with her mother, Lily, in early 1974, Ooh. which I don't think Lily was particularly excited about this either. Around this time was when Murph passed away. So I'm sure that brought a lot of feelings up as well. And Velma was there ostensibly because she needed help, but also to take care of her mother. Now her mother's alone. And so this was supposed to be a quid pro quo. You need a place to stay. I'm getting older in my years and I need somebody to help me around the house. Yeah, but if you're on a bunch of drugs, how are you helping around the house? She is not. And she was a bubbling cauldron of resentment. She was so angry with Lily about so many things, especially being forced to do housework as a child. So now being an adult, 
and being forced to do housework, she was just not having it. Ronnie said that his grandmother would come in and be like, hey, can you at least fold the laundry or just ask for some small housemate type thing? And his mom would just blow up at her. So they were fighting a lot at this point. Although Lily would later say that she was grateful to have Velma around when she got really sick in 1974 in the summer. Because then at least Velma was there to help take care of her. Such good care. Well, Lily was sick with stomach issues until Christmas of 1974 when she was well enough to prepare a holiday dinner and host all of her children and their families. So this was a nice holiday for everyone. Though she was feeling a little better, Lily confided in her son Tyrone, Velma's brother, that she had gotten a strange notice from the bank and she was confused at how to deal with it. The letter said that her loan payment was overdue and if she didn't pay it off, they'd repossess her car. Now, Lily said that she had never taken out a loan from this bank and that her car had been a gift from her late husband and had been paid off for years at that point. Tyrone assured her that it's probably a mistake and that in the new year, I'll look into this, mom. I'll go down to the bank and make sure that they know this isn't about you. It must have just been a clerical error. But Tyrone would be consumed with other issues by the dawn of 1975 because his mother, Lily Bullard, died on December 30th, 1974. Oh. Lily had been taken to the hospital after she complained of severe stomach cramps, back pain, and vomiting blood. She was admitted to the intensive care unit, and two hours later, she was dead. Lily had been 64 years old and in generally good health before the stomach issues of 1974. The doctor recommended an autopsy, which all of the children agreed to, including Velma. And inflammation was eventually found in Lily's heart. Without anything else to point to her death, the doctors decided that the cause of her death was an undiagnosed heart condition. So they didn't find any poison. No, but these tests for poison weren't run in a run-of-the-mill autopsy at this time. I don't even know, to be honest, if they're run in autopsies at this time. I think if there's a suspicious death, but if she's like an older woman who lost her husband and... She's 64 years old, which isn't old in today's standards, but we're talking 1974, so it's a different time. So maybe they just didn't look that closely. There was nothing to think that somebody had it out for her. She's just a nice old lady who has grandchildren and had nine children. No one thought that somebody would be poisoning her. Now, after all of these tragedies, Velma was no better off than she had been before the deaths. She was bouncing between her grown children's houses. She was doing her best to get as much prescription medication as she could. And so she ended up passing bad checks in order to pay her medical bills and her pharmacy bills. Velma was eventually arrested for multiple counts of check forgery and fraud and sent to jail for six months. When she initially got to prison, she was really sick from withdrawal. So the doctors there gave her a small dose of Valium and an antidepressant that had very serious sedative qualities, they said. And this was just to get her through her sentence. So she's not really getting clean in prison at all. She was released on good behavior after only three months. 
serving half of her term. And she promised her children that this time she was going to clean up her act and she was going to be committed to rehabilitation. But six days after her release, she was back in the hospital due to an overdose. Yeah. If you're not going to get clean in prison, you're not going to get clean when you're out. Yeah. And I mean, I don't think that the doctors in prison were doing her any favors because they didn't have a long-term rehabilitation process for her. I think that they almost just gave her the drugs because it was easier to deal with than dealing with actually detoxing her and helping her get clean. Absolutely. So at this point, things were going really poorly. Both Kim and Ronnie were married and they were both expecting their first child. So they're in this really exciting but difficult time in their life where they're trying to focus forward and trying to protect their own families and their own children. And they don't know what to do with their mom at this point. There's not a lot of money to go around. Nobody has extra wealth. No one can say, let's put you in a program and we'll foot the bill and take care of it. And then you can live with us afterwards. They just don't know what to do. And she was stealing from everyone. So she was asking Ronnie for money and he adored his mother. So he's giving her more money than their family can really afford. Then when she was living with Kim, she started stealing checks from her son-in-law and passing his checks off. So shady. And so that was the final straw. They're like, look, you have to figure out your own life. And they worked with her parole officer to get her put in a halfway house. So she's in a halfway house. She eventually got a job through this halfway house to be the live-in caretaker of an elderly couple. And she did manage to cut back on her drug use enough that her kids believed she was sufficiently recovered so that she could be a part of her grandchildren's lives. Things seemed a lot better. And Velma seemed to take her new role as caretaker of Montgomery and Dolly Edwards very seriously. Montgomery was 94 years old and he was not in great shape. He had lost his eyesight and both legs due to diabetes and was bedridden. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So his wife, Dolly, was in comparatively good condition and 10 years younger. She was 84. But she had gotten to the point where caretaking for her husband was a full-time job. And at 84, she wasn't really up to the task anymore. Yeah. The Edwardses only lived one mile away from Kim. So Velma was very close to her family. And she seemed to get along with the elderly couple well, apparently because Kim and, and her family live so close, they would do things together. She often brought her child over to the Edwards's house while her mother, because her mother was living there. And they all became fairly close. Velma was attending church regularly again. And minus one incident when the Edwards's son reported to Kim that Velma appeared intoxicated when he had stopped by one day. And that he wasn't going to stand for that. So if it happened again, they were going to fire her. Other than that, it did seem like Velma had made a change in her life. It was through Dolly that Velma met the next significant man in her life. That would be Stuart Taylor. You may recall Stuart from the beginning of this episode. Stuart was visiting his aunt, Dolly Edwards, when he made the acquaintance of her caretaker, Mrs. Velma Barfield. The couple dated for a month before Stuart decided to try to reconcile with his third wife, whom he had been separated from at the time when he had met Velma. This was very disappointing to Velma, who was really into Stuart. 
And like I said, at this point in Stuart's life, who'd been like a lifelong farmer who had married his sweetheart when he was 17, I think, and she was 19 because she was two years older than him. They had had four children, one of whom was adopted. He had been an extraordinary dad, a great husband. And just at the age when the children had all grown up and started having families of their own and he got to spend some quality time with his wife, she ended up dying at the age of only 52 from kidney disease. So sad. Yeah, his daughter said that he didn't know how to fry an egg. He didn't know how to take care of himself. He didn't know how to live without this woman who had been the love of his life since he was 17 years old. So he jumped into a second marriage very quickly within five months of her passing. Okay, similar to Barfield. Exactly. And then when that didn't work out, similar to Barfield, when they got divorced after I think only, again, five to seven months, then he had remarried once more and he had tried to make this third marriage work, which is why he was kind of in flux when he met Velma. And he, with the counsel of his children, decided to not see Velma so that he could actually focus on his relationship with his wife and see if it was able to be salvaged at that point. Velma was pretty bitterly disappointed. Obviously, she is of a certain age at this point. She's a grandmother and she's working in a home with some elderly people. So she's not getting out and getting the opportunity to meet a lot of eligible bachelors. So Stuart was a pretty good option for her. And she was irritated that Stuart was giving it a go again with his estranged wife. And she was also getting increasingly unhappy with her position at the Edwardses. At first, she was perfect. And she was seemed perfectly happy. But as Montgomery's condition got worse, it required a lot more work. And she was resentful of that. And she also started projecting her feelings of resentment that she had had on her mother to Dolly, which I'm sure has a lot to do with her drug use as well. She's on a lot of drugs. Maybe she doesn't necessarily feel like doing any work. And she's living in a home with these older individuals who maybe remind her of her parents. And she started kind of talking back and fighting with Dolly a lot, who is going through a very hard time. I mean, she's her 95-year-old, now 95-year-old husband is dying. And now the caretaker they hired is fighting with her and is not doing some of her work up to the standards of taking care of a human life. And then things got worse when Montgomery did pass away on January 29th, 1977, which was not terribly surprising given his advanced age and his significant health issues. Yeah. What was slightly more surprising was when his wife, Dolly, followed him into death only four weeks later. Hmm. Towards the end of February, Dolly had complained to her stepson that she had a terrible stomach flu and she was suffering from extreme vomiting and diarrhea. By the next day, she had to be rushed to the hospital and within 72 hours, Dolly Edwards was also dead. Andy, you know there is just about nothing I love more than, you know, you and love murder and our kids than trying out new beauty products. Oh, I know. It is definitely your thing. And I love when we find a new product that we are both 
over the moon for. Yes. And today's sponsor has a product that really turns something that I used to find to be a total chore, shaving, into something that I'm actually looking forward to. Yep. Of course, we are talking about the Athena Club razor. Not only is it maybe the most gorgeously designed razor I've ever seen, it's incredibly gentle on my skin. Yes. Before they were a sponsor, Andy used them first and told me all about this razor saying that it was the closest and smoothest shave you've ever had. Yeah. I honestly cannot remember the last time I used a brand new razor right out of the box that got all of the little hairs without getting all of the little nicks. That's because the Athena Club razor is designed with built-in skin guards to help prevent razor burn while being gentle on curves. Plus, the razor blade is surrounded by a water-activated serum with shea butter and hyaluronic acid, which, of course, we all know is a holy grail for skincare. The best part is the razor kit is only $10 and comes with two blade heads, a magnetic hook for shower storage, which you know I'm obsessed with, and your choice of handle color. The handle colors are so cute. I got a blush pink, of course. They even have black and white razors for all of you minimalists out there paging you, Andrea. Jessica, you will actually be shocked to know that I got the baby blue and I'm truly digging it. No, I am really surprised, actually. And with Athena Club, you never have to think about blade refills because you choose how often you want your replacement blades shipped to you for free. And you'll never be stuck with an overused blade longer than it should be used for, which I have been guilty of for pretty much my entire life. Ditto. Athena Club also has the most amazing shave foam that will leave your skin soft, hydrated, and smooth. Also, the shaving cream truly smells like a super bloom cloud. And you know I'm a sucker for lychee. It's no wonder Athena Club's razor has thousands of five-star reviews from customers. Show your skin you care with the Athena Club razor kit. Head to athenaclub.com and use code LOVEMURDER for 25% off your first order. Again, that's athenaclub.com and use code LOVEMURDER for 25% off. Athena Club has also launched in Target stores nationwide, so be sure to check out the shaving aisle to buy their products in-store in real life. I mean, it's crazy. It's so dangerous for anyone that has any sort of immunity. What's it called when you're immune deficient? Yeah, immunosuppressed. Yeah, like the flu, the stomach flu, it could be that dangerous. You lose so much fluids. You're weak. You can't take care of yourself. Like it's really, really dangerous. And Dolly, Dolly was a cancer survivor and she had a colostomy bag. So any sort of digestion issue like you're talking about could be potentially fatal. And also, it's not totally uncommon when people have been married for a very long time and they're older and one partner passes that another passes shortly thereafter. We, we hear about it all the time. So nobody thought that this was at all alarming. It was, you know, she was in better health than her husband Montgomery, but it still wasn't perfect. She wasn't a hearty inhaled 20-year-old by any circumstances. Velma's kids supported her through both funerals because they had been close to the Edwards as well. And they weren't thinking about this at all. They weren't worried about their mother being involved in any nefarious senior citizen killing at this point. They were more worried about her. They were worried about Velma because they were worried that she was going to slide back into a deeper drug addiction. And they didn't know where she was going to live because she had been living with the Edwardses. But luckily for them and for Velma, they did not have to worry long, although 
not lucky for the next people that Vilma worked for and cared for. A minister at Vilma's church helped her find her next victims. I mean, employers. And she would be caring for another couple. 80-year-old John Henry Lee and his 76-year-old wife, Recordly. Record? Record. Isn't that cool? Yes. I also think it's really rock and roll with Lee behind it, like Recordly. Yeah. I love that name. And it's record just like you'd play a record. That's, that's it. While John and Record were pretty sprightly for their ages, Record had recently broken her leg. So that meant that she needed more help around the house and she couldn't help take care of John Henry. And so he was 80. So he's like, I can't do all the things around the house that she needs me to do. So we need some help. Velma had been officially hired by the Lee's three daughters who were delighted with her. They loved Velma. They said that she kept the house spotless. She cooked healthy, nutritious meals for the couple. And she seemingly gave them excellent care. So they were all happy with this arrangement. Soon Record noticed that someone was using her checkbook and forging her name, however. Record's with it. She is. She called the police and they came out to investigate. But neither she nor John could think of anyone who would do that. They absolutely did not suspect Velma at all. So they're like, the only person who's around us is like our caretaker and our daughters and none of them would do it. And they're like, okay, well then there's not much we can investigate here. Like, thank you for letting us know. We'll talk to obviously the grocery store or your bank or whoever we have to talk to about these forged checks, but be careful, keep your checkbook on you and watch out for anyone who's around. And that was basically the extent of the investigation. The incident was forgotten only two weeks later when John Henry, who had been previously in exceptional health for an 80-year-old, began to get extremely ill. John Henry was hospitalized for the first time on April 28th, and he managed to hang on with Velma's expert and loving care, of course, until June 4th, 1977, when he succumbed to his illness. And what is really sick about this is that John Henry's daughters were grateful, like terrifically grateful to Velma during this month-long period. They could not say enough nice things about her. They were so stressed and worried about their dad. And they said that Velma was patient, attentive, loving, and caring. They were literally crying tears of gratitude that in his last days and weeks and moments, he had somebody who was there with him, who was caring for him. Yeah, because they're good people and they wouldn't ever think that someone would do that. But Velma's doing all of this and able to do all of this without being resentful because she's getting something from them. Yes. And there is speculation that we'll get into why she says that she did this later and what she expected to happen. Because the crazy thing is she's not getting in these people's wills. She's not getting crazy paydays. She's not getting to become their beneficiary of their life insurance policies. She's like nicking small little bits. She's taking checks. She's taking money lying around. So there is some speculation that she was getting off on the power, that she was getting off on the killing. Yeah, I would say. Yeah, so they were so impressed with Velma that they asked her to stay on and care for their mother, Record, after their father's death. Is Record, like, sus at all? She wasn't right away. And 
it seems like record was healing, so they might not have needed somebody to stay with her. It was more like they didn't want Velma to be out of a job because they liked her so much. Jesus Christ. Yeah, but the arrangement would not last very long. It only lasted about five months or so longer because Velma had a new arrangement for herself in mind. Stuart Taylor had dropped by a couple weeks earlier after John Henry had passed away to tell Velma that he was legally separated from his third wife and he would like to pick up where they had left off. Do you, though, Stuart? I don't think so. I don't think so. Poor Stuart. Soon they were spending every weekend together. Velma later said about these trysts, We would go on trips. We would spend our nights together in a motel, but I kept this quiet. No one knew this was going on. I was attending church, and I mean regular, too. I was playing the role again of an ideal church member. The wrongs I was doing, I kept quiet. Very quiet. So murdering people is okay, but sleeping around with your partner isn't? Like, that's so backwards. That's why I highlighted that passage, because this is what she's concerned about. That is what she doesn't want her church to know about. Thou shalt not kill was number one. Not thou shalt not sleep with your fiance after you've already had two husbands. (laughs) Murderers seem to forget about that one. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, in early September, Record Lee recently recovered of a broken leg and a broken heart after her husband's death soon fell ill herself. She was experiencing a variety of stomach ills and cramps, diarrhea, vomiting, etc., just like John Henry had. The Lee daughters were not yet suspicious of Velma because she didn't stick around. Shortly after Record went into the hospital, Velma said, I'm sorry, I have to resign. This is too much for me. This is too much care. And I'm worried about your mom, but I can't be the one to watch her pass away. And she dipped and record survived. Thank God. Mm-hmm. So we don't know why she decided to leave record alive, whether, you know, the daughters did not indicate that they were at that point suspicious. Maybe she thought they were. Maybe she thought that the heat was going to come down on her and that's why she got out while the getting was good and record was just left alive. You know what I think it was? She couldn't be having SEX and killing someone because that's like two sins. You could only pick one. You could only do one sin at a time. So Record survives Huzzah and she had moved into a trailer basically. So there's like a rental trailer and a trailer park in the area close by where her kids live so she could see them easily. And yeah, it kind of seemed like it was like in a more urban setting, people get an apartment. And here in a more rural setting, it was more like people get a trailer as like a temporary living situation. So she moved into this trailer and the goal, I think, was not to stay at the trailer. She wanted to be made an honest woman by Mr. Stuart Taylor. And she wanted to move into his nice house and be his wife, seeing as she's giving away the milk. He's got to buy the the Velma cow. Now, Stuart had intended, though, to be a little more cautious when it came to matrimony after two failed marriages that had ended fairly quickly after his beloved first wife had died. 
So he was happy to date Velma and get to know her, but he wasn't exactly rushing into getting married for a fourth time. And he wasn't even legally divorced at this point. But then something happened that triggered a protective and loving feeling in Stuart. In early November, Stuart went over to Velma's to find her on her bed. So this is what happened. So he was supposed to go see her. He goes to her door and he knocks. He doesn't hear her. And then he knocks again and he hears muffled screaming coming from inside the trailer. So now he is worried about her, of course. He opens the door. He finds that it's open. It's not locked. He can hear her screaming, but it sounds like her mouth is covered. So he runs into her bedroom where he found Velma in her underwear on her bed and her hands and feet were bound with duct tape and her mouth was covered with duct tape as well. Okay. So, of course, he immediately goes to take the duct tape off her mouth and get her unbound and and cover her up. And she's hysterically crying. And she, at that point, had a job and she was working some sort of night shift at that job. And so the next morning, I think she was working at a um, nursing home. And so she had come home in the morning after work. And what she usually did was take a shower and then take a nap. And then she would do something in the afternoon and evening and then go back to work. And so when she had gotten out of the shower, she said that she had walked into her bedroom and that all of a sudden somebody put a towel over her face. She couldn't see anything, but she said that she knew it was a man who had put the towel over her face and then bound her, but had not said a word and then had just left. So didn't steal anything? Didn't steal anything. Didn't sexually assault her. But she's hysterical. She's scared. So, of course, Stuart's like, we're calling the police. As the detective comes and he's asking her all these questions, too. Like, he's like, okay, so what did he look like? And she's like, I don't know. I didn't see him. He put a towel over my head. He's like, okay, so what did his voice sound like? She's like, he didn't say anything. And he's like, okay, well, what did he steal? And she's like, I don't know. I don't see that he stole anything. And there was also no sign of forced entry. So he's like, did you have your door locked? She's like, well, I probably just kept it open. So the detective thought that she was doing this for attention. Okay. So he was like, this is kind of weird. It doesn't make any sense. There's no motivation. Nothing was taken. You're unharmed. She's totally unharmed. He didn't hit her or anything, she said. He saw how protective Stuart was and how he was like holding her and taking care of her and administering to her. So the detective was like, I don't think a crime here happened here. But he's also not going to get her in trouble for this ruse because he thinks maybe it was just a personal situation. And he's like, okay, if you find anything out or you have any reason to suspect anyone, let me know and we'll keep an eye out for this prowler. Mystery towel, man. Yeah. And if that was the goal was to get Stuart to take her in, it worked because that very day, Stuart said, I'm not leaving you alone in this place. You're coming to live with me right now. An engagement soon followed and Velma and Stuart were living in sin at his house in short order. But the fantasy of this new relationship did not meet reality. Just as it had been with Jennings, Velma and Stuart quickly found themselves disenchanted with their new fiancé. Velma found out that Stuart had a drinking problem. We know how she feels about that. Well, Stuart found out that Velma absolutely had a pill problem. Velma 
had been angry to find Stuart going through her things when she came home one day. Well, the reason why Stuart was going through her things was because he had just found out that she was using his checkbook all over town. And he was trying to get to the bottom of if she had his checks or what other things she had on her person. And apparently while he was going through her paperwork and her things, he found some letters that had been written to her while she was in prison for passing bad checks. So then he found out that she had been in prison. So he didn't even know that the woman he was going to marry and who was living in his house was an ex-con. So when she came home, she's like, what are you doing going through my things? And he's like, what are you doing writing checks under my name? And also, hello, you didn't tell me that you spent time in prison. Not good foundation. Not a good foundation. You're right. This is not the foundation you want for that lasting sunset love that I described at the beginning. This was not going the direction that Stuart had hoped it was going to go. So when Stuart found out that she had stolen more than $200 worth of checks to buy prescription medication, he was beside himself. Now, $200 doesn't sound like a lot of money. But back in the 70s, that's more like $900 to $930. Yeah. He told his daughter that the wedding was off, that he was not going to marry Velma. He said that he didn't want to kick her out of the house and they were still trying to figure out if there was any relationship that they could be in, any part of a romantic relationship. But he said he would not marry that woman because he did not trust her. It seemed like Velma also saw the writing on the wall. In early January of 1978, she went to her son, Ronnie, and told him that things were not working out with Stuart. She said, I have no money. I have no place to live. I'd like to move in with you and your family. But Ronnie said, no. Yeah. I can't do that to my wife. They had a 20-month-old baby, and they were thinking of maybe having another child. He's like, it's too much. And he said, furthermore, Mom... You haven't gotten better, and I can't have you around my 20-month-old. I'm afraid that you could hurt him. I'm afraid that something would accidentally happen because you're blitzed on drugs. So, no, I'm sorry. You can't move in here. So this shocked Velma. Ronnie had always, I mean, both kids loved their mother. And I think it's because she set such a strong foundation in their early years and she had been such a good mother for so long for them that they did really care about her. But caring about her at this point is also saying, no, you need to get help and we can't be the ones to house you. So she didn't know what to do at that point. Ronnie's not going to take her back. And she decided that she was going to have to figure out how to make it work with Stuart or... Come up with a whole new plan. Oh. A couple weeks later, Stuart and Velma went to go visit his daughter, who had a three-month-old baby. And after that, they went to go see a famous evangelist in Fayetteville. But almost immediately after the service began, Stuart began to have excruciating stomach cramps. He knew that Velma really wanted to see this evangelist. So he's like, don't worry, I'll get through it. I'll be fine. But within 30 minutes, he had to excuse himself to go be sick outside because he was really not feeling well. And when Velma finally left, he said, I can't drive. You have to drive us home. So they're stopping so he can vomit along the way. He's not doing well. He can barely sit up. And his condition continued to decline. But the stubborn farmer 
was trying to remain in his own bed. He didn't want to go to the hospital. He just thought it's a stomach flu. I've been through worse. I'll get through it. He was trying to white knuckle his way through this. It was three days of agony. Three days of his kids visiting, being like, Dad, you've got to go to the hospital. Another farmer visited and said he had never, no matter how sick he had been, not gotten up and tended to his animals. It was bad. And so finally, he was like so out of it that they were like, we're not waiting anymore. We're calling an ambulance. And an ambulance took him to the hospital. And only an hour later, 56-year-old father of four, Stuart Taylor, was dead. So sad. Yeah, his family was stunned because Stuart was a pretty healthy guy until this point. They said that, yeah, sometimes he drank a little too much, but it wasn't anything that would cause death. No, yeah. At least not immediately, not like this, overnight almost. So the doctors asked Stuart's loved ones if they would consent to an autopsy. And with Velma's enthusiastic support, like I said, she said, absolutely get the autopsy because you'll always wonder if you don't. They got the autopsy. Meanwhile, at 5.30 in the morning, the following morning after Stuart has passed away, the same detective who had handled Velma's alleged assault situation received a phone call from a woman who seemed both drunk and hysterical. She kept screaming, somebody's got to stop her. She's killing people. Please, someone stop her. There's been a murder. So this like unhinged woman is on the phone. This guy is like, whoa. And he's trying to find out what's going on. He gets out of this woman that she's not in immediate danger. So he's like, okay. And she's trying to tell him something, but it's not making any sense. It's also 5.30 in the morning. So he's like, look, I'm going to go to the precinct at 8 a.m. I will be at my desk at 8 a.m. You obviously know my name. You found me. Call me at the police station at 8 a.m. And we'll talk about this. And this woman ended up calling back considerably calmer at 9 a.m. And she said that Velma Barfield had killed Stuart Taylor her boyfriend, and that Velma Barfield had also killed her own mother. But that wasn't it. She said that there were more people that Velma had killed and that the police should look into the elderly people that Velma had been paid to take care of. The anonymous source ended up being Velma's sister. Velma's sister had called from South Carolina after she heard the news that yet another person close to Velma had passed away. So she'd gotten drunk, (laughs) freaked out, and then in a drunken state at 530 in the morning was like, I'm calling the fucking police. Blasted Twitter. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So at this point, obviously, none of the Taylor kids know this. So none of Stewart's children know that this is a history. They don't know what Velma's sister knows. Yeah. So Velma goes to the funeral. She's standing with the family. People are like telling her how sorry they are for her. And she's comforting her would-be stepkids. On the day after the funeral, they gave Velma a ton of Stuart stuff. They had her come by the house and they're like, we're so sorry we have to have you move out because he had left his house to his children, not her. But, you know, take whatever you want. So she's like, picking up all his kitchen appliances, taking his electronics. And they felt so badly for her 
that each child gave her a hundred dollars to go start her life without their father and told her how grateful they were for her and all of her help and that Stuart had loved her very much. So she ends up netting $400 from these grieving children, which is more like 1800 to 1850 in today's money. Wow. Yeah. So like I said earlier, they don't usually, at least at this point, as a matter of course, test for poisons when autopsies are conducted or heavy metals or whatever this is. But after the tip-off from Velma's sister and the fact that Stuart had no obvious other ailments, unlike the elderly people she was killing, the medical examiner decided to send samples to the lab that could be tested for arsenic and other poisons. And they came back positive. It appeared that Velma had used pest control poisons on her victims, just some stuff she could pick up at the grocery store or maybe the pharmacy while she was picking up some other things. Singletary's rat poison was a clear, odorless, and tasteless liquid which contained a high concentration of arsenic trioxide, the deadliest form of arsenic. Additionally, it appeared that she may have also used something called taro, a very common ant poison, which was also colorless and tasteless. Wow. Now, the detectives had to look back at all those who had met death while in the company of unlucky Velma. We're talking two husbands, one mother, three employers that she was paid to take care of, as well as one that narrowly survived, and now one fiancé who was trying to leave her. Before the police told anyone but the DA what had been Stuart Taylor's cause of death, his kids were already growing suspicious. So after they gave her this money and all of this stuff out of Stuart's house, they're also dealing with the aftermath of cleaning his house out, deciding whether they're going to sell it or what they're going to do with it, going through all of his estate. And they discovered that prior to Stuart's death, he had written quite a few checks to Velma. Only the problem on these checks was that the signature was not their father's. It was a forgery. So pretty much right away, they're like, okay, so she took our money and she also was stealing hundreds of dollars from our father while he was sick. So they're already pretty pissed off and they were going to go to the police themselves when the police came to them and said, your father died of arsenic. And when they found that out, there was no doubt who the culprit was. So the detectives picked up Velma. They read her her rights and they began an interrogation. Now, Velma's attorney would later argue that whatever she said in this interview should be thrown out because Velma was under the influence of narcotics. They're prescribed drugs, sir. And I mean, the other thing is, is that she was always under the influence of narcotics at this point. So Velma eventually confesses to poisoning not one, not two, not three, but four people. So who does she confess to? So I found two iterations. I think that the book I read said that it was Stuart Taylor, her mother, Lily, Dolly Edwards, and John Henry Lee, but not 95-year-old Montgomery Edwards. And not Jennings. And definitely not Jennings. So, But then I read another one that said that she didn't 
own up to Stuart, but she owned up to Montgomery and Dolly and her mother and John Henry Lee. Either way, maybe Stuart's in this mix. Maybe he's not. But she says definitively that she had nothing to do with Jennings' death. She had nothing to do with Thomas's death. And she never poisoned recordly. So she's saying, no, 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 no. But there's some people that I did. Well, Jennings Barfield was exhumed and proved to have a pile of arsenic in his system. The forensic scientists were also able to prove that Record Lee had been poisoned because they analyzed her hair and fingernails. But she had survived miraculously because Velma had left her alone. Because she's a badass. Yep. And (laughs) with the badass name to match. But Velma had still, despite this information, said, no, I didn't poison them. I don't know what they're talking about. But I feel like Mori Povich would say the test determined that that was a lie. (laughs) (laughs) So we've got Jennings, Dolly. Montgomery is questionable. He was very, very ill. I do not believe they exhumed him because I think his family was like, we already know that she poisoned our mother. She likely poisoned Montgomery, too. Let's just leave it. She's going to go down for one of them. John Henry Lee, her mother, Lily, and Stuart. So we're looking at six people here. If you count record as half and then maybe Thomas's death, we've got like seven and a half now. Yeah. (laughs) And unfortunately for Velma, North Carolina legislators had just worked a loophole used by other states like Georgia, Florida and Texas to reinstate the death penalty in their states after the Supreme Court had ruled to outlaw capital punishment in 1976. So right around the time that she's getting caught, the death penalty is back on the table. Bad timing, Velma. Bad timing. And the DA coming for her was none other than Joe Britt, who was named the world's deadliest prosecutor by Newsweek magazine. Amazing. Within 17 months, he had conducted 13 first-degree murder trials and won every single one of them. Sending all of those murderers to death row. Whoa. He's an interesting cat. So Jerry Bledsoe, this is a very detailed book, and he goes into a lot of detail about everyone involved in this case. I feel like I could have used a little bit more information on some of the people that Velma killed, but everyone who's involved in the trial, I think he extensively interviewed. And this guy was, he was a storyteller. He's an orator. He was somebody that didn't plan to get into law, and he certainly didn't intend on being the world's deadliest prosecutor. But he had a strong sense of justice, and he also was unconventional in the idea that he picked juries differently. He treated people differently than most prosecutors did. So this is from Jerry Bledsoe's book. And he wrote, Joe Freeman Britt didn't hold with modern so-called scientific methods of jury selection. Courtroom voodoo, he called them. Law schools taught people to look for affluent, educated people for the jury, not Brit. Such people had been exposed to too many specious sociological and psychological theories, he thought. They were too easily swayed by sad stories, carried too much secret guilt about their advantages. He said, I like my juries to be kicked around a little bit. I want a guy who drives an old car, not one reading psychology books. That way, when some fast-talking defense attorney starts telling him how his poor client was beaten by his daddy as a child and how that makes him not responsible for what he's done, my juror's going to think, shoot, my daddy beat me too and I never killed nobody. Amazing. (laughs) Which is a really good point. 
It's a really good point. It's like everyone wants to give everyone the benefit of the doubt, which is, I think, very good for society to have empathy. But when you're a prosecutor, you don't want somebody who's going to be like, well, okay, maybe. You want someone to be like, oh, fuck that shit. I went through it too, and you don't see me killing people. Absolutely. Joe Britt decided to only try Velma for the murder of Stuart Taylor because that was the only death that qualified for the death penalty based on when she murdered everyone. Okay. Because of the loophole, she had also had to murder within that period. And I guess actually John Henry Lee was pretty close. He died like right after, but the poisoning began before it had started. So Stuart was the only one that really qualified. And he figured that he was just going to go for Stuart. And if she was acquitted for some reason, then he could go back and try her on every other murder and go for life imprisonment. So I felt like that was a pretty smart tactic. Smart guy, huh? He is. Yep. And the deck was pretty stacked against Velma. I mean, this DA was good at what he did because he managed to get Velma's confessions and evidence about all of the other poisonings into the trial. That's tough. I mean, it's going to be a hard case for Velma's defense attorney. And Velma's defense attorney had never tried a death penalty case. So we've got this younger guy not who's never tried a death penalty case going against the world's deadliest prosecutor. And everything she's ever done and said is allowed in. On November 27th, 1978, when the special criminal session of the North Carolina State Supreme Court met to determine Velma's fate, and this was like her big fancy trial, her defense attorney argued that Velma was the victim of drug addiction, which she was. She was sick. And that that evil had led her to steal and cheat to feed her addiction. Velma said, and he argued, that she had never intended to take anyone's life. She had just wanted to get her hands on a little bit of money so she could get her drugs. She never stole more than a hundred bucks here or there. And yes, she had confessed to poisoning these people, but she did not intend that they would die. She just wanted to make them sick enough that they were distracted or incapacitated so that she could have time to pay them back before they realized the money was gone. Yeah, that's a crock of shit. That is an outhouse crockery of shit. So this argument was just to try to get second degree murder. That's all. I mean, he's not arguing she didn't poison them. He's just arguing intent. The intent was not to kill them is what he's trying to say. He just wants to save her from the gas chamber at this point. So they had doctors testify that the drugs Velma were on were humongously addictive, which we now know, and that her long-term and short-term usage, to be honest, would have absolutely impaired her judgment. Now, Joe Freeman Britt argued that that's fine. You can say she's sick. You can say that she's got drug issues. You can say she wanted to steal from these good people. However, you can't say that she wanted them to live because if she had wanted Stuart Taylor to live, she would have told the hospital the moment they got there that she had given him arsenic just to make him a little sick because there is an antidote to arsenic. It's called BAL, 
And the doctors that cared for Stuart said that even in his state, it is possible that had she told them as soon as they got to the hospital and they had that on hand and they could have administered it, that he could have lived. And that is the same for every single one of her victims that ended up in the hospital. I mean, Dolly Edwards was there for 72 hours. So there's no saying that they would have definitely lived. But if she didn't truly mean to kill these people, you think she would have gone, shit, shit, so sorry. Uh, my bad. Turns out I gave these people arsenic. Can you do something to save them now before they die? So she didn't care. She did kill these people. Velma's defense attorney's only hope was that if they put Velma, who is this outwardly a nice Christian granny on the stand, that she would be sympathetic enough to the jury that they would feel bad about killing her. That's about it. Because he's like, what do I have here? They have got confessions. They've got evidence. My only hope is that they decide they can't in good conscience kill her. I know, but they're not killing her. I mean, I understand that as well. But this is what they're thinking. Because this is, he doesn't have much to work with, this defense attorney. <laughs> so he puts her on the stand. And she is not sympathetic. She does not do a good job playing the nice Christian granny. She got very confrontational with the prosecutor. And during a cross-examination, she even seemed to suggest that her victims hadn't died because of the poison she gave them. She's like, I admitted to poisoning them, but not to killing them. She was like, people just coincidentally seem to die if they get poisoned. I would go ahead and say that you are a danger to society, if that's what you think. Guys, verbatim, this is what she said on the stand. What I would like your honor to say to the jury and all, these autopsies, let me say first of when a person dies and they ask for an autopsy to be performed, is it not true that we have an autopsy performed to find out that reason of death? So. I don't believe it killed them, really, because the autopsy didn't say so. And that's exactly how I feel about it. About the, the autopsies where they weren't tested for arsenic. And so they found some other reason. So she's basically saying they were going to die anyway. And the poison didn't have anything to do with it. Did not help her case. And it got even worse because Joe Britt was really, really good at closing arguments. And he had this big southern baritone and he like delivered this like theatrical like closing argument about this woman that killed her own mother and how evil she was and apparently after he was done and everyone was kind of like whoa Thelma smirked at him gave him a look and did like some sarcastic little slow clap <laughs> and so everyone saw it and I guess even her own son was like oh shit mom what are you doing? Why would you do that? That's such a bad look. Don't do that. And the jury did not like that. No take gustas. <laughs> no take gustas at all. Yeah. So the jury basically got their instructions. They went into the room and the foreman was like, well, why don't we take one anonymous vote? Everyone just like write down what you think and we'll see where we stand and then we can start deliberating. And every single one of the first votes were unanimously for first-degree murder and to kill the bitch. Yeah, so we don't really need to <laughs> deliberate here. Can we still get lunch? Can we go? Can we order in some lunch? I'm feeling Thai. Yeah. So, yeah, this was a foregone conclusion here. The jury also recommended, like I said, the death sentence, and the judge was happy to oblige. 
the deadliest prosecutor in America had struck again. Andy, this is a 420-page book. And half of it, just about 200 pages, is just taken up with Velma's redemption arc about how she gets clean in prison, like really clean. She goes through withdrawal. She really gets clean. How? Yeah, because she's going to real prison like forever. So yeah, they don't give a shit. They're not giving her some like little dose of Valium and some sedatives to take the edge off. You're in prison, babe. Yeah. So she gets clean and she starts like helping other people in prison and she really devotes herself to her faith. And so it's all about this. And there was one reviewer on Audible who said that the book was very well done, but there was just too much focus on Velma and her family. And now her family members are also victims. They're also homicide survivors because she killed her own mother, who is their family member. And they're going through a lot dealing with their mother throughout this. So they're victims too. So I don't mind that I'm getting a lot of Ronnie's perspective in this because I think it's very valuable. But there definitely was a lot to be made about Velma and Velma and does she deserve to live? Does she deserve redemption? It's like the person who wrote the review was like, I want to hear more about the people who killed who didn't have a choice. That they're not the ones that are on the cover of newspapers being talked about whether they got a chance to live or die. So I agree with that criticism. I wish that there was like more than half the book wasn't just about Velma improving herself when she really had no other choice. There wasn't an option. I think that's the case with like a lot of murders. And I think that's a lot of the reason that people like listening to your stories is because you do talk about all of the victims. And I think a lot of the times the murderer outshines the victims in all forms of media during the trial, after the trial, in the books. Like I think it happens a lot. Yeah, and that's, I think, a problem with a lot of true crime, unfortunately. So as much as it's great that Velma got clean and was helping other people now, I don't care. <laughs> it's like it's like at the end of the day, I'm like, I'm sorry. You killed seven people, likely. Six that you've basically admitted to. I think we talked about this with Betty Lubitz, and if you guys are on the Patreon... Definitely, if you are not, sign up. Patreon plug. (laughs) We covered Carla Faye Tucker on Patreon, who is another white woman who was a Christian woman who brutally killed. She axe murdered two people while she was under the influence of drugs. And everyone wanted to save her ass. I mean, she became the face of the anti-death penalty movement. And this also happened with Velma Barfield. Billy Graham was in contact with her. He was having his congregants pray for her. It was like she was getting famous for being the death row granny. And she was the face of the anti-death penalty movement. And this also (laughs) really ticked me off. I was actually, I didn't want to give too much of the episode away to Andy, but I was like real pissed last night talking about it. Because I was like looking at some of the stats about people on death row and she is very far from what the face of a death row inmate is. 98% of death row prisoners are male as of 2019 and 41% are black despite the fact that black people only make up about 14% of the United States population. Black people are disproportionately affected 
by the death penalty, not white little old ladies. White little old ladies are not the people who are dying because of the death penalty. And also, based on a statistic from the Innocence Project from 2014, they think at least 4.1% of people on death row are actually innocent. I was going to ask you that, yeah. So maybe instead of a woman who confessed to killing for petty cash to buy drugs, multiple people, seven people, maybe find a nice young man who is actually innocent, and he's probably a Christian too, if that's the angle you're looking for, and go with him as your face of the anti-death penalty movement. So I just had to go on my rant to say that because it was really frustrating me how glowingly she was depicted and how essentially Jerry Bledsoe is asking, did she not deserve redemption? And I'm not saying that she didn't because, because though the thing is, is that they didn't know that much about drug addiction at this point too. And so there were some factors there. I don't think she should have necessarily been killed by the state. She could have stayed in prison for the rest of her life and exactly help people that way. I don't think she deserved to ever be out among people. So it depends on what type of redemption you're talking about. Yes, exactly. And letting her be a martyr for a movement when there's thousands of other people dying by execution throughout the history of the United States, many of whom were actually innocent. And that's what I think the problem is for me is the hypocrisy that you're going to hold this person. This is the person that you're going to go with. And, and that's what I think I was a little PO'd. But yeah, there was a hugely concerted effort to get Velma a pardon or a new trial or like a bazillion appeals to maybe overturn her sentence. But this was all for naught. Velma Barfield was going to be executed and no one could save her. Billy Graham consoled Velma by saying that he was actually jealous that she'd get to heaven before him. (laughs) Velma was actually given a choice between being executed by cyanide gas in the gas chamber or by lethal injection, which was relatively new at this time. And Velma chose lethal injection. She would end up going down in history as the first woman in the United States executed by lethal injection. When it was determined that no one was going to stop the execution, Velma's family began to prepare for her imminent death. And one of the things her son Ronnie needed closure on was the death of his father. Yeah. (laughs) So Ronnie had had a reoccurring dream throughout his life about a flame in a trash can, like throughout ever since his father's death, right? And it had started coming up more often after his mother had been arrested. And it was in this dream, there's like the fire coming up and there's a bunch of wadded up paper or something. And then it goes up the walls and he's stuck in the room and he can't get out. And so this dream, when it started occurring over and over again, brought up a suppressed memory. So Jerry Bledsoe had interviewed Ronnie and he talked about it here, about this dream and about confronting his mother. The memory had returned soon after the dream began to come to him again and again. It was a few weeks before his father's death. His daddy had come to him and he said he wanted him to see something. He took Ronnie to his bedroom and showed him a plastic wastebasket close by the head of the bed. 
Something had been burned in it. The bottom and one side had melted. The wall above the container had been slightly charred and discolored by smoke. Your mother set that fire while I was sleeping, his father told him. That's crazy, Ronnie said. You were drunk and smoking and you went to sleep and you dropped a cigarette. Your mother put that there. It wasn't there when I went to bed. It's never been there before. Now, Ronnie was really mad at his dad because his dad had started drinking very heavily and it was very destructive in their family. And he said, you probably brought it in here thinking you might need to throw up and you don't remember it. You don't remember half of what you do when you're drunk. And Thomas was like, son, I'm trying to tell you that your mother is trying to kill me. And Ronnie was young and he was angry and he said, you're the one who's drinking yourself to death. So screw you, dad. And he said that in the shock and sorrow and the conflict and the confusion that had come with his father's death by fire only a few weeks after this conversation, he had like willingly pushed this out of his mind. Absolutely. Because his dad's dead and he is relying on his mom. And he even said that he was still so angry with his dad that went after he died and after the funeral, he had said to his mother, well, at least we don't have to worry about him drinking anymore. And she had been like, don't say that. I'd rather him here drunk than not here at all. And so I think he really pushed this out of his mind. And when he knew that his mother was certainly going to be executed and therefore would be taking these secrets to her grave, he summoned the courage to outright ask her if she had done something to his father. And according to the book and to Ronnie, she seemed like she had been waiting for him to ask that question. She was kind of like, I've been waiting for you to ask me that question. And I'm sure I probably did, is what she said. Like half admission. Mm -hmm. She said, I can't remember everything. She said that she recalled that Thomas had come in drunk again. They had argued. He finished off a six pack and passed out on the bed. I remember having something in my hand, she said, a cigarette or a match. I remember laying it on the foot of the bed. Whoa, that's dark. This is sad too. So trigger warning for pet death. She closed the bedroom door, she said, left the house and went to the laundry. That closed bedroom door had always haunted Ronnie. He knew that his father never closed the bedroom door. If the fire had been accidental... The door would have been open and Sadie, the family's Siamese cat who was devoted to his father, might have sensed the danger and jumped onto the bed and awakened him before the fire had a chance to spread. But Ronnie had said nothing at the time. So I guess Velma said, you know, I wasn't in my right mind. And he said, I know. So where were the kids? So the kids were at school. And I guess that they found the corpses of the kitty and the doggy under the bed. So sad. Yeah. She definitely killed Thomas. And later on, an attorney who I believe was working with her on one of her appeals said that she now realized she probably killed Jennings too. She just said she was so messed up on drugs that she didn't really remember poisoning him. It's a little important. A little important detail there. Yeah. So, I mean, I would go ahead and say across the board, the only question mark is... Montgomery Edwards because he was already so ill, but that probably means that he didn't need a lot to kill him. Exactly. Yeah. Ronnie would often wonder if he could have saved those lives, if he had been able to critically think as a 16, 17 year old kid about his father's death. And maybe he had been blinded by devotion to his mother. But the only one responsible for these murders is the murderer. And that's Velma Barfield. 
Absolutely. But he's a good person. Yeah. It sucks, too. Her kids' lives were, like, ruined by this. I mean, they couldn't go anywhere. They couldn't do anything. She was everywhere. And even at one point, he was like, Mom, if you know that you're going to heaven, kind of, like, let it be over with. Because every single time there was more appeals and public outlook, she was doing TV interviews. I mean, she's doing TV interviews. She's doing book interviews. She wrote a book about her life. I mean, she's doing all this press. She's getting all this attention. And he's suffering. And he's like, if you know you're going to heaven and you know you didn't do anything wrong, like maybe just give up. And she was like, no, I got to keep fighting. And she even asked him, she said, would it be better for you if I maybe just was executed? And he's like, it might be because then it'd be over. And she's like, well, too bad for you. I like going on TV. Yeah, it doesn't really sound like she was redeemed. Seems like she might be unredeemable. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah, sorry, guys. I, I didn't mean to be so excited about her unredeemable, but I love the movie Spirited so much. Nathaniel and I watched it like six times this holiday season. Uh, At least twice with you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's last meal time. And Velma said that she would eat just whatever the prison was serving that evening. So she was given fried chicken livers, macaroni and cheese, collard greens, lima beans, and pound cake. However, when it actually came, Velma did not want to eat it. So she did not touch that last meal. And instead, she ordered a bottle of Coke and a bag of cheese doodles from the canteen. And that was truly her last meal. Coca-Cola and cheese doodles. What the fuck is a cheese doodle? I think it's more like a, a Cheeto versus like a cheese puff. It's like the little crispy ones. Yeah. <laughs> cheese doodles. They didn't call them cheese doodles where you grew up? No. <laughs> oh, I can't think of a more American meal for your last meal before you're executed than A bottle of Coke and Cheetos? Cheese Cheetos, yeah. I mean, I don't think they had flaming hot Cheetos back then, so I'm going to pass. <laughs> I'll take the pound cake for sure. The pound cake and mac and cheese. Yeah, right? I mean, eat some of that. But, you know, of course, you know you're going to die, so you're probably not super stoked. Yeah, feeling super hungry at this point. And there was a lot going on at this prison, too. I mean, there were supporters of Velma loudly singing Amazing Grace. Yeah. This Oh, this execution was televised on CNN. This was crazy. And now there's also another camp. There was all of her detractors, all the people who hated her screaming, burn the bitch, which also isn't cool, guys. That's not cool. This woman is dying. It's not Salem in the 1600s. No, no. So there was just, it was mayhem. And there's a reporter who was actually there for the execution. And he's on the show. I watched like World's Most Evil Killers. And he said that it was very heavy. It was very intense. He said that you walked in to a room knowing that when you left, someone was going to be dead. That there was no surety in life like that. Like even when somebody's sick in a hospital or something, you're praying for them to get better. You're like, you're going to get better. We're going to leave here. You never know. The fact that the, just the, the knowledge that you're walking in and a healthy person, otherwise healthy person, is going to die. So they said it was pretty heavy. So on November 2nd, 1984, I was a wee baby. You were still gestating. <laughs> I, sorry, that was a weird word, word choice. Velma Barfield wore pink pajamas, was strapped down to a gurney, administered a lethal injection, and passed away around 2 in the morning. Jerry Bledsoe, in the close of his book, asked the following question. I think we've pretty well covered it, but I'm going to say it anyway. 
In a culture that believes in second chances, with penal systems that cite rehabilitation as their goals, shouldn't redemption matter in relation to the death penalty? He's basically also saying that, yeah, there's a lot of people on death row who probably don't deserve to die. So shouldn't we take that into account? Absolutely. Yeah. Shouldn't we take into account, though, that Velma specifically had gone through redemption or was redeemed in some capacity? I mean, her option was stay in prison forever or go to heaven. Yeah. That's why I'm just thinking, like, overall, let's just maybe not murder murderers because then we'll find out if any of them were innocent. And then the alternative is they have to stay in prison forever. And that's like not so fun either. Yeah, maybe we should allow people who are in jail for minor possession of drugs to leave and rehabilitate. And then the murderers can stay in prison for their entire lives. <laughs> I think that's a pretty good plan. Position. That's a good plan to, to make. I like it. Let's just have Andy reform our prison system. <laughs> She's got some good ideas. But then again, you know, I can't tell you how I'd feel if someone I loved was murdered. I might be like, give me a window to the front row of the execution chamber. Let's do it. So it's hard to say when it's not somebody you love and know who was either murdered. But either way, it's the level of redemption. Like, should (laughs) she have been walking out on the streets because she looked like a granny? Fuck no. No, no. I always do think it's kind of funny, too. And she really wasn't that old at this point that she died even because she was just a grandmother at an earlier age because she had children so early. I always think it's funny, though, when people are like, oh, nice old people. They're so sweet. Just innocent, kindly old people. It's like they were once young and assholes, too. Yeah, didn't we cover <laughs> some crazy killer clown <laughs> psycho like last week yes. on Current Affairs? Like, no. Yeah. Remember those uh, farmers, the Copelands? They were like a nice farm couple that was just murdering their hands left and right. The crazy farm people hands. definitely get crazier as they get older. <laughs> yeah, they don't go gently into the good night. <laughs> Oh, well, thank you guys so much for hanging with us for this extra long episode. About redemption. About redemption. And to whom it is owed. Uh, Not really. It's about fucking asshole murderers. In conclusion to this very heavy episode, I can only think of one thing, Andy. How about we don't murder for any reason? For any illness, for any past history, just no murdering. That's all I'm asking. No murdering, and in Velma's case, no arsenicking. <laughs> no arsenicking. I hope there's been some rat poison reform since. Yes, no arsenicking. I know you don't think that can cause death, according to the <laughs> autopsies, Miss Velma, but I think it can. It does. Trust your gut when it comes to love, so no one gets poisoned but not killed. All right. Bye. Bye.